You are now listening to the Here for the Truth podcast, hosted by Joel Rafidi and Eurosimos. All right, truth seekers, welcome back to the Here for the Truth podcast. As you know, I say it every time, but I'm Joel Rafidi. I got my co-host Eurosimos here. <laughs> oh man, we've had an incredible run of episodes, and today's absolutely no different. We have the amazing Matt Presti in the house, a name you might not be familiar with. Some of you might be. He's the former president of the Walter Russell University. And today, we're diving deep into the secrets of light and consciousness. So come on this exploration with us. We talk about really the true meaning of light, what it means to live a life of balance, the true nature of God, um, and much, much more. This is a really fascinating conversation. Right before I bring Matt on, just want to remind our listeners that round four of Rise Above the Herd Applications are now open, spots are filling up, and this round starts on November 29th. We're taking 12 students only, so if you're interested in learning more, in connecting with your own inner authenticity, with walking the path of your highest potential, and really cultivating a life that's reflect that's reflective of your true values, you know, one that's not dependent on anyone or anything for security, stability, and also for happiness. So we'd love to meet you so you can submit an application at riseaboveTheHerd.co and you'll get a complimentary 20-minute call with us to discuss whether it's the right fit for you. Um, all our episodes are at HereForTheTruth.com. Again, guys, we really, really appreciate your support. Um, this platform continues to grow because of your um, your listenership. So thank you so much and please enjoy this episode. All right, everybody, welcome to episode 96 of the Here for the Truth podcast. Today, we have an amazing guest with us. We have Matt Presti. I'm going to do my best with this bio because he's got a long list of credentials over here. He's a meta scientist, musician, patriot, philosopher, poet, practitioner of universal law, natural science and living philosophy, audio and video producer, broadcaster. He hosted the series Interviews and the Exploration of Consciousness. He's the former director of operations and president of the University of Science and Philosophy, formerly the Walter Russell Foundation, and he is currently the CEO of Universal Power LLC. He also is a volunteer firefighter on Montauk Rural Fire Department in Dent County, Missouri. Matt, welcome to Here for the Truth, bro. Thanks, guys. It's a pleasure to join you. It's a pleasure to have you here, man. Um, there's a lot to talk about, but you know, with new guests here, we really like to get into your major rites of passage, your personal hero's journey around, um, you know, your your venture into truth seeking and discovering what that is. So, could you give us a brief rundown of how you found yourself, I guess, in this world? Yeah, thanks for the question. It started when I was a kid. You know, I always had this exploratory nature, this massive imagination. Um, I was inspired a lot by uh, classical music my dad turned me on to as a kid with the LP 33s, you know. We had this uh, old crappy stereo that had one speaker. It was a mono, uh, I called it the Red Beast. But I would play these records and just lose myself in imagination, the music. And uh, often found myself wandering alone outside. We had this little, in our suburb, this little section of woods, woodland and You'd always find me out uh, climbing trees or hiding under the honeysuckle bushes, you know, mm. just daydreaming. So I had a great active imagination and still 
try to keep that alive today. Of course, the older you get, the more responsibilities you get. So that that kind of wanes, but it waxes and wanes. So you just got to catch those inspirative moments and 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 develop them and go with them when they happen because they're rare. But you know, just as a kid, it was a magical childhood. Um, I grew up uh, with both parents, fortunately. So I had a, a mom and dad in the home the whole time I was there. And I think that benefits a lot. Um, you know, you see a lot of kids today don't have that, unfortunately. But mm. anyways, the balance there was 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 definitely a plus. And just having that um, imaginative childhood, you know, and movies, especially the older I got, you know, the uh, Star Wars, of course, and Raiders of the Lost Ark, things like that when you're just a tween those things have huge impacts on you, especially in the, the imagination part of you. And so I just carried that in. Um, I got into music around seven or eight years old, obviously with the, the classical, but my dad bought me this little Jadwin piano. It was like one octave of little notes on little uh, little chime piano, basically. And so I learned to play one finger songs with that. And hmm. eventually it developed into a, a full-blown love for music and I played in several bands over my lifetime and ultimately got uh, dissuaged of playing with people because there would always be somebody who quit usually the drummer not to pick on drummers but um, <laughs> being a bass player and keyboard player and vocalist uh, I just decided it was time to, to do my own thing write my own music and so I learned all the instruments you know drums bass keys guitar and, and vocals and I wrote close to 400 songs in my life and recorded about 150 of those and about 85 plus are up on YouTube for free to listen to. So that was a big love for me. And other than that, I just, you know, I got really into um, around 2001, I think was a big wake up call and for a lot of people, mm -hmm. but I had started in 98 with the exploration of, uh, UFOs and, and Richard Hoagland's Enterprise Mission and ETs and Stephen Greer and that whole thing. And eventually with 9-11, that's when I really started to go full-blown into it. It took me a couple months to get my head out of my butt with the, uh, you know, 19 guys in a cave official story. But once I found out about Building 7, there were a three-day period I didn't sleep. I just was absorbing everything I could. And that completely altered my worldview you know, and I stepped foot into the conspiracy realm and, and have been there since. And like so many great researchers before us, you know, we all need new conspiracy theories because all our old ones came true, you know? So, you know, there, there's never been such vindication for conspiracy realism, I would prefer to call it. But so that led into spirituality and eventually spirituality. Uh, I discovered Walter Russell after reading a lot of Eastern you know, comparative religious study, Eastern and Western mysticism. And then Russell came to my life in 2008 with The Secret of Light. And that just blew my mind being a musician. And I met a lot of musicians who have verified this, but they just were blown away by Russell's uh, work. It spoke to him not only as wisdom and logic, but also to the soul in, in rhythm there's a kind of cadence to his writing that a musician picks up on. So that blew me wide open, man. I, I couldn't get enough. I bought every single thing I could find by Russell and his wife, Lau, and I just absorbed it all. And I went to Swananoa, which was the home for the university that they started 
of science and philosophy for 50 years from 1948 to 1998. And I went there for the first time in 2010, met a bunch of former students, former staff, former president, current presidents. And uh, I was just blown away. It was, it was radical. It was really cool to meet people that were, you know, actually knew them and some of the work they did, you know, and so I got more interested and I started doing little podcast things here and there. And then I d did a series called the Secret of Light series, which uh, got noticed that my Knowing the Creator 101 series got noticed by then President Michael Hudak, who handpicked me to succeed him as the president of the university in 2015. So that was a real honor. And then uh, I also knew that the artwork wasn't out on display and I felt that that really needed to get back out to the world. So. That was a big part of my administration, and we did accomplish that. We were able to get that uh, 40 plus tons of art and sculpture back out on the world to be displayed. And it's a greatly inspirational uh, collection of art, all done by one human being, which is only 2% of the work he ever did. The rest is out there in the world somewhere, but just hugely inspirational. And uh, I've since graduated on from the university into the private sector and but I'm really honored to be able to join you guys. Hope that wasn't too long-winded. No, no, it wasn't long-winded at all. And it was actually, um, yeah, it was a great introduction, man. A really cool journey that you've been on. I remember in a previous interview that you you, you told your mom that you'd be the president of a university one day. And uh, and you became one, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, she she said, how are you going to be president of something when you of a university, especially if you've never gone to college? And I, my famous words, like I like to tell people, especially at the university is, quote, watch me, unquote. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's kind of my mantra. Somebody yeah. says you can't do something. My reply is watch me. I'm, it's like the, my favorite on It's not who's going to let me is who's going to stop me. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's awesome. Yep. Um, awesome, man. Can you just yeah. can you just give us kind of a general um, background and information on on Russell was uh, Russell Walter Russell and who he was and what he stood for and a little bit about his body of work. Well, Russell was definitely in the genius category of humans. Um, he's up there with Goethe and you know so many great philosophers you could name as well. Um, he is what I would consider to be a Western mystic. There's no doubt in my mind because his his experience of things behind the scenes, the reality behind the scenes, behind the divided universe is, is again, it's, it's unparalleled in, in my opinion. And I've studied a lot of the Eastern and Western uh, religious modalities and, and uh, the mystics of both uh, East and West, but nobody ever has written about their experience in the light, as he called it which is really consciousness. It's the undivided white magnetic light of mind. And he saw two universes. His still universe of white magnet magnetic light is the undivided. So that's if, you're, if your hemispheres short circuit in your brain and you all you see not using your senses is the white light of mind, which is the, the basically it's the medium or it's the... Um, what's the best word I could use, the, the, the field uh, that unfolds duality and which duality refolds into. And it can be symbolized by a seed. A seed grows up toward the sky as the tree, but also down as the roots. 
So there's your duality, but it's always centered. Duality is always centered by a fulcrum. And that would be the seed, just like we're seeds in the womb of our mothers. We are given life by the union of mother and father opposites. When those two things come together, that's what seeds the further what's called an offspring to spring off of a union. So, I mean, it's it's as divine as it gets. He he started his journey very young. He, he wrote uh, at eight months old, he heard the hurdy-gurdy man coming down the street. And he was playing this tune on the hurdy-gurdy. So he ran to the piano and started playing that exact song with one finger at eight years old. I'm sorry, eight months old. And then he would later go on to become the church organist at uh, 11, 12, somewhere in that range. And he got into painting and drawing. And eventually he mastered all the five fine arts. Wow. Uh, he was conferred 11 degrees, one doctorate of science, yet with only a fourth grade education. So aside from mastering the five fine arts, he, he was well known. He was sought after for his talent uh, by both uh, the Illuminati of that day, which are the you know, the Roosevelt administrations, both administrations. Uh, one was he was the personal portraiture artist for uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And then he was official sculptor for the uh, FDR administration. Um, and so he was he ran with the famous people in those circles. But he always stressed the importance of being alone in order to garner that inspiration to be able to do the feats that he did, both artistically and as an author, he excelled. So he wrote several children's books around the turn of the 20th century. And he also wrote uh, his magnum opus, a lot of people considered to be the universal one, which came out of a direct experience of that light that we mentioned earlier. And uh, that became a, a foundational book that I believe challenged the, the Catholic Church's hegemony on, on science and, and the quantum physics that was coming into being back in the early 30s. And I even think it went to the point where he, he recalls a story on tape, on audio that I heard that uh, you can find at the uh, University of Science and Philosophy's YouTube page. And it was a explanation of his remembrance of the Pope threatening to issue a decree against him if he reprinted the Universal One. It's around 1931. He was threatened by the Catholic Church. And if you got a decree against you back in the 30s by the Catholic Church, you wouldn't be able to work anywhere in the yeah. world. You know, so it's re reminding me of a, of a Michelangelo moment, if you've ever seen the uh, the agony and the ecstasy when Charlton Heston's painting and he's in an argument with the Pope and the Pope says, how is it an artist is closer to God than I am and I'm the Pope? Uh. You know, so um, he went through some, some hard times. So he... Uh, after the release of the Universal One, it challenged science. It put science, turned it on its head. He was he was ridiculed. He he wrote that they threw his work in the wastebasket and ridiculed it and persecuted him for having uh, put the creator into the creation as opposed to removing the creator from its creation. Mm -hmm. See, creation to him and creator is a must-be, a must-do relationship. Because how can you have a painting without a painter? How can you have a poem without a poet? And how can you have creation without a creator? So the basic genesis and maturation of Russell's work was that we live in a mind wave universe and that mind is causal and matter is an effect. 
And so that was the the basic underlying theme of of his philosophy. He would later divorce his wife of 56 years, citing that he felt as a man who had been released from prison, they didn't get along very well. But he would meet Leo some some months before that. And once they decided to get married in uh, 1948, I believe it was, they were looking for a place to, to buy, to purchase, to be able to display all his artwork, which is a massive collection. And so they picked Swananoa, wow. found that back in 48 and set up and got things open um, as of 1949. And the rest is history. As they say, they were able to write many books together. Their famed home study course is just a, I cherish it. It's just one of, one of a kind kind of courses, if you will. And it really, um, the unique thing about their material is it puts the impetus on self-unfoldment on you. It removes all middlemen. Anything in the middle is removed. It's you and the creator, which is in you, not outside of you. It sort of is both, but it's really developing that relationship with the self, which is God, to the degree that you're aware that it is. And those human beings, as the Russells both have cited, who have done the greatest things in this world are very aware of that relationship, of that inner power. And you can call it what you want. You can call it power, truth, love, light, balance, rhythm. You know, it has a myriad of names, which are all synonymous, but that light within is really the power source that we're supposed to, you know, they encourage us to connect with that and become geniuses of our own. Yeah. I, I can see how the Pope would put a decree out against him for for those beliefs. Um, Matt, if I were to, if if Walter Russell was in front of me right now, or even you, I'll ask you, like, what is God, you know, in that regards? Like, what would he, what would he say? What do you say about that? Well, he does answer that. They actually define it in Atomic Suicide. Uh, it's the chapter, page 107 begins, we define God. I don't think any chapter in any book anywhere was ever written like that, but it's astounding. The, the book Atomic Suicide is astounding. It, it, I like to say it melted my brain. <laughs> but it's, it's a read that uh, really explains, it's the maturation of the Russell science. Um, his concepts matured over 40 plus years as he developed them and became more aware of them. But basically the universe runs on balance and God is really mind. It's mind itself. But mind, what mind does is mind thinks. And then that's sort of the mind would be the spiritual, you know, the capstone of the pyramid. And your two lower corners would be physicality, the bodies of things, and then the, the, the brains or the thinking or the mental aspects. So physical, mental, spiritual. So the mind really is the spiritual, the mental is the thinking process, which is what our brains do. And the body is what builds other bodies. So everything man made in existence was first a spiritual idea, which was then mentally thought out. And then using the two strong arms of the body, we actually physically build these things that we call bodies, you know, and that's the process of creation. And so I think that he would define God as uh, the dimensionless, still, silent, 
undivided, eternal light of mind, if you will. And so really, I, I want to step further to say that that would be consciousness, because consciousness never sleeps. Consciousness, you lose sense of your body sensation, but your mind is still aware. It's just you don't have the sensation of the body during sleep. And many people I've spoken with over the years, I've heard a lot of stories about their coming close to illumination, how consciousness can exist outside of the body, outside of the realm of, of time and space. It seems to be all there is. And there's sort of this idealism in philosophy, which puts mind as the cause of the universe, where the materialists say some primordial atom called a God particle, you know, created the universe. It's a very materialistic, everything can be reduced down to a machine kind of explanation. But the idealists really tend to, to put uh, mind as a cause for this universal construct, because it truly is, if you really think about it, you can look at, again, there's a billion examples, which I offer up as exhibit A, which is anything man-made is first, you know, that's, that's your proof right there. It was all an idea in the mind of a human mm -hmm. whose only task was to think out that idea and then build the body for it. And then behold, it stands before us. This yeah. podcast is an example of an idea that is being built and thought out and constructed in the physical universe, which will then be able to be heard by many people around the world. So, yeah, I, I really, um, I love that you just said that because something I've talked about before when, when people bring up this idea, like what is, you know, do we have a purpose as individuals? And I always say this, like, if you look around you, every single thing, like I'm looking around, I'm home in my, in the place I grew up in my childhood bedroom. And so I'm seeing around all these different things on my desk and every single one of them has some purpose. So this idea that each individual doesn't have a purpose in this life. And I know you've talked about the unfoldment, you know, how to, how to connect and tap into that inner light and, and your inner purpose as an individual, like to think that a person doesn't have a purpose would seem silly to me when every, every single thing outside around us has a purpose. So I don't know if you want to comment on that at all or Joel or. Yeah, I'd just say real quick, um, if people didn't have a purpose, they tend to join collectives that give them one, you know, and that's that's the danger. Um, you know, the, the United States being an experiment, whatever you think about it, it championed the individual. Yeah. And that created the fertile soil for geniuses to emerge because individualism was championed over the crowd, you could call it. So anywhere where that happened, which really the United States, one of the, the sole places in the world, there's a few other, the Western um, civilized countries that, that, you know, over the past 200 years have produced some of the greatest minds in the world. And um, purpose is, a, is an interesting thing because, yeah, everything that you're looking at seems to have a purpose, but why is man the anomaly that doesn't? So I would say that's due to education in large part, because we're not taught in schools, minus a Steiner model, or, you know, the Montessori kind of model that champions the development of individual talents and things of that nature, the, the love of the child, what are those loves, help them develop them, and you're going to see a purposeful person develop with that. And I just don't think we have that in the majority of our school systems these days. So I would hope to see that unfold more. And that's part of the reason I do what I do is to 
to get word out to people that, hey, you can teach your child other ways than just, you know, the ways of the public school system. And a majority of the students at the university, ironically, are from the university system. They, they have told me many times over, we were hoping to learn what you guys teach at our university, UCLA or NYU, but found out they didn't offer this stuff there. It was just, you know, this is your conformist view of reality, take it or leave it. But, you know, you really need that healthy spiritual um, uh, inculcation to really develop. I think that's what's missing in the schools and why people tend to, to, to be without purpose and then join these, you know, uh, crowd causes, if you will. Well, of course, man. I love, I love the, the theory or the, the, the idea that you're bringing out, which is the basis of Russell's work. Because what you're saying, ultimately, from what my understanding is that everything begins from imagination, right? Everything begins with an idea. And then through us as the vessel, we can make those ideas in this, I guess, formless consciousness tangible through physicality. And to me, isn't it the most empowering thing ever? The fact that you have this gift as a human being to access this imagination, to access this realm of ideas and to create. They did a boil down of the great religions of the world. And, and basically, each religion, its greatest tenet says something along these lines. Man's sole purpose is to be like his creator. And you can read that, basically, surmise that from all the great religions of the world. You know, our sole purpose for being is to manifest our creator, yeah. which is creation. It's to, to be co-creators. So, again, I mean, there's, there's all the opportunity in the world for mankind to recognize this. But the problem is our current system doesn't really promote that kind of thing. So you have to dig elsewhere to find it. I think it's getting more popular, though. I really do. And I'll say we were all sidetracked or sideswiped by, uh, you know, the whole COVID thing. Yeah. But in a sense that that can only stifle people for so long. And, and for many, I'll say this much, that that 2020 was the best mm -hmm. sales year for Russell Books in the history of the university. We did like $330,000 in sales. As people, I guess you could say, because of the lockdowns, because of those things, they begin to question their reality. So it seems to me that, that evil tends to always shoot itself in its own foot. You know, it is the, the sower of the seeds of its own destruction. And so in a sense, that's a benefit for people to, to wake up, to have to go through some pain, you know, and some questioning their existence to be able to, uh, again, to rediscover that, that imagination. But it also had a lot of harmful effects. But I'm confident that, you know, humanity will will come back because its purpose, if you look at the reason we're created, it's to manifest our creator. And um, as much as this group of the powers that never were, as I like to call them, they just assume control, but it doesn't mean they actually have it. Um, they're going to find out the hard way that any violation of universal law, to the degree that they violate it, to the degree they're going to be broken by it. And uh, whether it takes 10 years, 100, or the next few months, we're going to see some incredible changes in that front. I hear you there, man. Listen, 2020, I was one of the best years of my life, the last mm -hmm. couple of years. I mean, this this podcast was created out of 
all of that, our connection, you know, me meeting Joel. And, and I think for so many people, um, it's similar, you know, they, they had more time to, to be with themselves, to observe what's going on around them, to be like, something's fucking wrong. This is weird. And to have this time and to go on the websites and internets and documentaries and podcasts and be like, oh, who's this Walter Russell person? I mean, even for me, I mean, I've heard about him for a while, but never got into it. But I, I've seen over the last few years, so many more people quoting him on like their Instagram stories or their Facebook feeds. And uh, it's just a testament to um, having that extra time to think and contemplate and introspect and then to to source out some of these great thinkers. Because the, the reality is, man, I, everything that I've learned in my life that I think has has served me into becoming the person that I am today was learned. Yes, okay, there were some childhood things and being raised a certain way, of course, have, have impacted me. But after I left university, after I left the academic uh, institutions is when I went down on, on my own hero's journey, my own path and started being more curious about some of these great thinkers or, or picking up a book here and seeing where it led me. And so, you know, there, our academic system is flawed. And, but again, it comes down to the individual and, you know, what, what do you want to do with that? You know, it's like that, the great, um, was the great quote by, uh, Walter Russell and it's, it's, uh, mediocrity is self-inflicted and genius is self-bestowed. So, you know, to what degree are you going to take ownership of your life and go out there and learn the things that you need to learn so you can be the person you want to be and you manifest uh, the creator, you know, manifest that, manifest those creations. So I dig it. Yeah, I don't mean to knock academia, but I do. <laughs> um, you know, the, the the current administration is full of nothing but Ivy League graduates. Mm -hmm. And look how they're running things. If that isn't proof enough that academia isn't the end all be all, you know, just because you you involve your or are involved or a part of the Ivy League doesn't mean you know how to do things. Yeah. So oh, I, I, I would say a group of hillbillies could run the United States better than what we're seeing run it right now. And of course, there's, there's an agenda behind it too. Of course, you know, uh, Klaus Cotton Schwab and his his WEF. You know, this is. Um, their vision of a new world, the fourth turning, you know, which is also a turning for us as well. It's a turning for creative people to say, I'm no longer going to go down this path of destruction yep. and reset. We're going to, we're going to eject you guys and create our own civilization that doesn't need you. Sort of the, uh, the Ayn Rand, uh, Ayn Rand model, you know, uh, Atlas shrugged, you know, we don't need you. We're going to go our own way and do our own thing. We'll take our talents elsewhere. Exactly, exactly. And we don't need you to, to do what we are already capable of doing, which you've utterly failed in your responsibility. You know, that's the problem with selfishness is it only looks out for itself. And it thinks it has the greatest talent pool, but we're killing them with memes, man. I mean, have you ever seen a meme war go so bad for, for one side, but so good for another? <laughs> I mean, we're killing them with memes. My God, we don't even have to fire bullets. But yeah, it's it's a matter of, you know, people are going to have to turn on their creative abilities and, and really start working to create the new model to replace the old one. And I don't think, you know, as Buckminster Fuller said, we don't need to do it violently. If we just build the new new one and, and gravitate toward that, the old one will become obsolete by default. 
So I, I'm really hopeful that we can get out of this without having to go toward a, a revolution style escape route. But, you know, whatever needs to be done. Me too, man. And I think it's happening. And that was the power of 2020. It was so polarizing that people were forced to either choose an authentic path and face their demons and slay their dragons or be taken into the abyss of inauthenticity, you know? And each time an individual turns on that light, connects with a higher purpose, removes dependence from these systems, develops self-reliance. To me, that is the Ayn Rand model. That is me saying, I'm taking my talents elsewhere. I don't need you. You know, you've shown me what you're about. That's it, you know? And someone leaves the herd. And then, you know, those empowered individuals get the chance to cooperate voluntarily, like this conversation right now, um, to call others forth. So to me, it absolutely is happening. There's no doubt about that. Um, my question to you is, how does one cultivate and reconnect with that inner light? Well, the inner dialogue needs to be established. And um, I like to call that uh, vertical awareness, cultivating vertical awareness. You know, we have this seesaw, the electricity between the hemispheres. We're always polarized. We got logic. We got um, imagination. We've got reason. We've got um, intuition. You know, left brain, right brain. It's like constantly doing a dance. But if your left brain gets too too much involved in itself, too egotistical, which really ego is just an acronym. Ego would be externally generated outlook. It's what your senses perceive and how you relate to other people. You have to yeah. put something out there, right? Something external. You have to talk. You have to look at and shake hands and tell people about yourself. So that's our external way of thinking about ourselves, you know, our, our directed outward expressive ability to communicate. But at the same time, how many people uh, inculcate a inward relationship? And again, I think I, I would say education doesn't have any idea about this or they would teach it. That's why these, these great masters whose shoulders we stand on have given us a blueprint, a roadmap to, you know, I really love the N-words, intuition, intelligence. Um, imagination is another one, the I-magi nation, yeah. right? The single eye, let your eye be single. Um, I think that's just another way of saying, notice the light within you. You know, stop that dance of the hemispheres, turn that horizontal outward sense-based view of reality vertical, you know, and start seeing the world from a stable position. And again, they say a lot of, well, my experience, a lot of musicians really understand Russell. What is it? I was asking myself just a couple of weeks ago, what the hell is it that makes musicians get Russell in a way that most laymen don't? Why, why is a musician sort of have an advantage to understanding his work and stuff? And, and it came to me that musicians by default, uh, many of them, most of them, I would say, think with both sides of their brain at the same time. And that's exactly what vertical awareness is. It's the ability to the degree. Now, there's degrees of that. Um, but to the ability you're able to think with both sides of the brain at the same time is to the degree that you can, you know, really turn on those creative abilities and also realize certain things that others don't realize. It's sort of a a way of uh, getting behind motion and then commanding motion to be 
your servant as opposed to being the servant of motion, the mm. servant of material. You know, you can command matter or you can be ma matter's servant. And the materialists are all servants to matter. They serve matter. They're, they're generally hedonists. <laughs> Yep. They live for the the you know the the bang and the thrill and and the body and the lights and the flashing, you know. A lot of materialists hang out at the at the casinos. A lot of materialists they're just glued to the external world. So there's really where where in contrast you find the poet, the painter, the sculptor, the philosopher in his study alone with his hand on his knee thinking, you know, like the great thinker motif. Mm. And uh, you know, that's what it takes to, to discover the inner world. It takes a lot of inward thinking. And Dr. Russell's really one to call that out in his, in his IBM lectures, think uh, the think lectures. And there's a book available by that title, think the uh, ethics of business, I think. And he really talked about that balance that men have to basically humanity, humans have to develop, a balance between their external thinking, wants and desires, and then an internal. He basically said a daydreamer is one who gets nothing done because he's always in his own head. But then you have the opposite of that, which is the materialist who's always go, 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 you know, live for the senses. And it's all external. Everything, all his focus is directed externally, outward from his uh, soul. Yeah. So the balance is to think outwardly and inwardly. So the outward is the expression of the soul to the world. The inward thinking is the, the consideration of the soul, its desires and ideas. And you have to have a balance of that. Mm -hmm. So it's all about balance. The, the number one tenet of Russell's work was balance. Absolutely, yeah. man. Very reminiscent of, I guess, the lemniscate, the, the infinity symbol, right? The, that flux between coming back to the center point to the inwards, then external output. And returning again. And you're so right. We was, again, we're polarized. Some people can just be, you know, consumed with input without having any execution. And I guess in the materialists are just purely focused on execution without really coming back to the internal. Um, so in your experience, I guess I want to ask you, like, how does that, how does that play out? Do you have a practice to cultivate balance? What does that look like in your own life? Well, if you're out of balance, the good thing about the world is it will inform you very quickly. That's true. <laughs> Especially if you have a mate, you know, the, your, your, your other half, if you will, you know, they tend to mirror, uh, you know, relationships are like a mirror. So whoever your partner is, is going to mirror back certain things that you do, especially your imbalances and your balances. That's the beauty of relationships. Uh, they're, they're not safe. They're, they tell us a lot about ourselves. We can learn a lot about ourselves in our relations with other people. So generally, I mean, if you, you know, you've been on the road and some jerk behind you is honking, you know, he blasts past you because you're doing the speed limit, flips you off, cuts in front of you just to stop at a stoplight. That's your asthma. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, that's just, there's an example of unbalance. Now you could, you could, flip him off and tell him to get off his car and take it to the ground. But, you know, it's like, what's the point? This guy's going to go on. He's going to do it again. He's, and eventually he'll either run into someone. He'll either get pulled over, get a ticket. But that's how balance comes to people. You know, we don't necessarily have to be 
the ones that balance another's unbalance, just be aware of imbalance. And that kind of helps us get centered. You know, uh, Bruce Lee said, don't look at my finger when I'm pointing at all that heavenly glory up at the moon, mm. you know, we tend to look at the, the, um, the overstate the obvious, we tend to, to want to explain away the, the things that, that are right in front of our face, you know, to realize but the, the great lesson, I think, in understanding how you get day-to-day, the best day-to-day advice I, I can give a person is keep your balance, you know, keep that balance throughout the day. And when you're in a balanced state, that automatically gives you more access to that inner light. You're going to have more output, more voltage running through your brain because you're centered and you know, you look at the great sports icons, the great martial artists. I mean, Michael Jordan scored his greatest seasons, greatest points in games when he was in that zone, that centered zone. You know, the great gymnasts, the great, you know, any sport you can name, when when a person's in the zone, they're going to compete beyond off the scale. Yeah. And it's the same with martial arts. It's the same with painters. We forget our bodies when we're writing music. You know, and and you really become holy mind at that point, and that's when the magic happens. That's when you can draw that power straight from the source itself, and it is a deep well of still water, as Dr. Russell called it. And we pump out that light into motion, and the more balanced you are, the more that pump is able to access that still power source and yeah. uh, put it on display, if you will. Yeah, you know, you use the term voltage, and we're talking about balance, and I immediately go to, you know, your nervous system. And I think this is where it's it's so important to, to have a regulated nervous system. And so when life circumstances or things happen, or a person cuts you off, or a person sends an email, or your partner says this, you don't just, you know, go off and have a tantrum and, and say or do something that, you know, 20 minutes later, you wish you didn't. And so, you know, it's 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 so foundational to really get to that place where you're taking care of your body, when you're taking care of your mind, when you're eating the right foods, when you're in an environment that that um, supports health and balance, you know, as opposed to, I mean, let's be real, I lived in New York City for nine years. And uh, while I had a good experience, let's just say that's not a city that is, you know, um, meant for having, a, yeah, conducive to balance. Uh, whereas, being more aligned with nature and in harmony with nature is going to support you in that endeavor of, of being more balanced. But just because you are in nature, there are other things that need need to happen as well. You know, it doesn't mean just because you stick someone in nature and then they're, they're good. Now it'll help them, but there's other factors that play into it. Right. Well, it's a lot of the mind really, you know, if we're not comfortable in our own minds, we're not going to be comfortable in our bodies. Mm-hmm. Number one, you had a mind before you had a body. The body is the vehicle for the mind to express its nature, you know, and, and unfortunately, um, a lot of people carry over things from past experiences, lives prior to this one. Um, I tend to agree with, with a lot of the great mystics that like nature, man is an idea that that comes around again and again and again. And so whether or not you believe that or not, I think there's certainly child prodigies that, you know, can explain um, past lives as, as an absolute possibility. You know, how does a two-year-old end up playing virtuoso on a violin? 
having never played one before, never taken a lesson. So there are those, and there's many examples. Um, but I think a lot of that stuff, call it karma, things that come over from from past experience, and it can even be experiences in youth and childhood. You know, you're getting yelled at by a parent or, you know, God forbid, other things happen to children, you know, and I can say the same for myself. We, we've all had some childhood trauma, right? Mm-hmm. But do we get over it? How do we get over it? Um, having that experience, you know, that creates, in other words, right out of the gate, we're already at a disadvantage when it comes to balance. So we have to learn it as we go along. And again, they don't teach this in schools because we'd have a hell of a lot more of a balanced society if we did, you know, so human beings have to pick this knowledge up along the road through experience. And many do, many do come to the experience and, and realization of balance without these kinds of teachings, just through their own experiences, they start to realize, Hey, this, when I did this, these things happened, you know, we set up certain patterns in life. We have to repeat these patterns until we become aware of them consciously. And then we can stop the repetition, but only when we become consciously aware of them. You know, patterns are going to repeat as long as you're unconscious about the repetition. Once you become conscious of that repetition, that's when you can put the brakes on. You can sever that repetition only through awareness of it. So that's where the psychological nature comes in. You really have to study your own mind and go into your head deeply, you know, and and really self-analyze yourself and say, you know, I'm, I'm aware now that I've done this this way and this result keeps happening. And as Russell said, if you remove the cause, the effect's going to stop. Yep. So yep. when we learn too, also that we are cause generators, not just mm-hmm. effects of, of, of matter, but actual causation, you know, we can, we can make matter do things. You know, we can cause matter to do things. I can cause this body of matter that I call Matt Presti to do things like have an interview or, or write a song or a symphony or build a garden, whatever it is. So when we become aware of ourselves as cause, then we also become aware that, hey, these effects that I'm causing, if you do the psychological work, you'll stop those repetitious effects only through your awareness of them. And that's how we get more into the school of balance and understand that, you know, every choice we make is going to either A, create more balance or B, imbalance. And it's to notice, you know, which choice before you make it is going to lead to balance and choose that one. You're going to make a more uh, divine life for yourself with that awareness. Sure, man, being going to be willing to learn your lessons. And, you know, we can really use the external world and the feedback from our environment to, to bring ourselves to balance as well. Like, what are the results that I'm getting? What are the things that I'm repeating? And that can be the, the catalyst for one to have an internal journey and to, you know, and, 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 to, and to look inwards. So, of course, man, still like utilizing the both. And I wanted to ask you, like, do you think there's some kind of, I guess, intentionality um, around, I guess, because I found in my own experience, obviously, when I'm consumed in artificial light, so to speak, that I feel like my own inner light has diminished. I feel like I have less access to my own internal world when I've gone down these, you know, these rabbit holes just on my phone, on my computer for too long, whatever it might be. Um, can you comment on that at all? Well, I just wrote an article on my website um, under my post section about communication. So it's it's fitting that you bring that up. But I think you know, a lot of the youth 
they're glued to their cell phones, even older, older folks. Yep. I noticed one parallel though, the, the older the person I speak to, the less they have anything to do with technology. And so you tend to have the most incredible conversations with the seniors, you know, because they, like my mom, she, she had a computer for a minute. She had an email address, couldn't figure out how to use it. She decided the hell with this. I just want to go back to writing letters. I don't need all this stuff. So, and the family was like, mom, you got to get on the internet. You got to get an iPhone. You got to have pictures and do it. She doesn't want anything to do with it. But I think, you know, just looking at the communication skills of people tells you that these devices, and it's funny, we call them devices. We should probably just call them vices mm. you know, because they really do diminish the inner light. They diminish not only our ability to communicate with each other, but they impersonalize it or depersonalize it, which kind of makes the age-old loved sitting around the campfire conversation a, th a thing of a bygone era. So I think it's really important, too, to, again, what is the balance? These are fantastic. I ran a university off this thing. So it was really great to be able to have that. I can check my email on the go no matter where I'm at. But at the same time, knowing when to put it down and when to inculcate the light within you and really let that be the communicator, you know, and I think we could stand to get back to that, especially with the youth, because I mean, I've got nieces and nephews and even grandkids that, that seem to get lost in it. So we have a rule at, at grandma and grandpa's house. You know, I built a playhouse out in the front yard. There's only so much time you get on your device, go outside and play, you know, yeah. actually take part in the world instead of just the screen. So I think it's, again, it's a balancing act like anything. You just have to know when to say when. And yeah, but it, it'll definitely, it'll diminish your light if you overload on it. So yeah. it's a good thing to, to take a breath every once in a while. Yeah, it makes, it makes complete sense. It's definitely something I think um, many of us grapple with. A friend of mine actually on Instagram posted today these images with a bunch of statistics. He was doing some research. And he goes, on average, Americans check their phones 344 times per day. Against, I don't know when he got, where he got these studies from. Right. And then 71% of us check our phones within 10 minutes of waking up. 53% say that they've never gone longer than 24 hours without their cell phone. 47% consider themselves addicted to their phone. 61% have texted someone in the same room as them before. 62% <laughs> say they sleep with their phone at night. 36%, this, this is the craziest one for me. 36% say they'd give up their pets to keep their cell phone. Oh, wow. Okay. And then 26% say they've endangered themselves to avoid losing or damaging their cell phone. And then 54% say they panic when their cell phone battery goes below 20%. Yeah, my friend Casper uh, put this on his page. That's crazy. Crazy. Wow. But yeah. pet? Are you kidding me? Right. My little Rosie, I would never. I'd throw my freaking phone like against the wall if I did. I mean, you probably got ten percent would give their children up for adoption to keep. Yeah, this, if you'd ask that question. But, but it's wild, and again, of, of course, I don't know what the sample size of this was, and it's a statistic. But sure. when you when you when you listen to that, that that doesn't seem super far off when you look around, right. when you observe right. the, the people. You know, I mean, I went being back in my hometown, I went to a mall for the first time, like like your typical hometown mall for the first time in ages. And I'm walking around and I'm looking and I'm seeing people. And, and it's like, man, I mean, some things haven't changed, but then a lot of things have. And I think like the device use, 
and how people utilize their di- devices in the company of others that I think is really interesting. You know, and I, and again, I say this, I'm not perfect. I'm on my device. If you ask my wife, she'll be like, your Osmos uses his phone a bit too much. And, um, you know, it's something that, that I, that I need to get a handle on at times. There's times where I'm good. And there's times where it's like, you know, when you have a podcast and then you have a business and you're using your phone and, and these, this light, this light from the phone, it's like a false light that hypnotizes you in some way. And I don't want to be a play the victim because ultimately I have control, but it's like, you have to know this. You have to understand that a lot of these people that created these these uh, applic- these applications and these companies they understand the vulnerabilities in the human psyche so you know to to to, to kind of co-opt your mind so they can get attention so you have to know this and go all right i'm going to fucking war with this you know utilize it for the gifts again here we are on technology beautiful we could have conversations with people around the world we can share knowledge and wisdom but again do you know when to like put in a lockbox and, and go into the woods for a couple of days mm-hmm. I'll just ask a question. What do you think would happen if people looked up as much as they looked down at their cell phone? If they spent an equal amount of time looking up, you think the world might be different? Oh, man. Totally. I think we've seen an uptick in imagination. Yeah. yeah. Looking up at the stars, at the moon, you know, it yeah. just, we're Balance. going through this, whatever it is, but I'm convinced there's something good on the other side of it. It's something that I guess the human race just has to go through. It's an interesting thing to say the least, and it's it's teaching us a lot about ourselves. And who knows, maybe maybe these things are the seed for telepathy. You know, maybe mm. these there come a day when a coronal mass ejection hits, and all of a sudden we don't need to text anymore because we can think directly from mind to mind. We'll find out real quick who's hiding shit and who isn't. You know, yeah. well, I think, think that, that like how often you think about someone or something, then like you get a text, you get an email like two five yeah. seconds later. Dude. Well, I also want to comment on that too, is because Joel and I, I mean, I, besides my wife, I spend more time than anyone with Joel and we, we've kind of um, synchronized in some way. So even within this interview, there's been times where he says something and I literally was about to say the thing multiple mm-hmm. times. And this, I think this happens for both of us, you know, when, when we're with a person on an interview or because, you know, we're in the same realm and field and and our consciousness kind of sync up and i just know i notice that more in my life i'm actually noticing it more these days where i'm able to just tap into something or think of someone or let's say i'm laying down for a minute and then the person pops into my head and then i go to my phone like 20 minutes later and then i see that they emailed me 20 minutes ago Mm -hmm. so the moment that i thought of them there was a communication from them whether on a text or an email so I I can't answer why that is. Maybe you can give the reasons or what 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 Walter Russell would say why that happens. You know, is it a form of telepathy or just tapping into some field that you're both connected to? Well, if you know, basically, I like to call Dr. Russell Doc for short. So if you yeah. hear me say Doc, I'm I'm referring cool. to Walter. But uh, Doc did two drawings. Um, he did one of the black of space, and it it was just just space, one rectangular picture, and it was all black. And in the middle, he had written the one white light of mind. So basically, all of space is literally the field of mind. And everywhere where a body is, there you will find consciousness of some form or another. There's even consciousness in a rock. It's just a lower, you know, grade of consciousness. It's, It's much, much simpler, if you will. 
where we're more of a complex consciousness because we're a complex system, the human body compared to a um, a sand particle of, you know, sand on the beach is quite a complex difference. But that field, if you invert that black of space, if you invert it to where it's white, then all the bodies, all the galaxies, all the planets will appear black. And you'll see that they're each an anomaly. But basically, he said that that all bodies in motion come from that stillness of space or that field of consciousness, that field of mind. And so that field, literally, all minds are connected to that field. Um, and like a drop in the ocean, a genius might be, say, a teaspoon of water in the ocean where just a mediocre person might be just a drop. But still, nonetheless, it's it's does the drop realize it's something greater than being just a drop? And I think that field, that mind field, if you're on the same frequency, like you and Joel, for instance, have those those moments where you're both thinking the same thing without saying it. And I find that with Lori, myself, we, we do that a lot as well. And some other friends here and there, you know, but that just shows you that that mind is not just local. It's it's non-local as well, which means it's not confined just to the body. I mean, mm -hmm. you can imagine yourself standing on the surface of the sun, let's say in all that heat, yet not getting burned. You can picture it in your mind. Is mind local or is it also non-local? Local mm -hmm. isn't aware of the body, yes, but also what else can it be aware of that's not of the body? You know, can you stand on the rings of the Milky Way? Can you stand on uh, above the, the hexagon on, on Saturn and look down into it? Um, there's all these interesting concepts, but really I think... Um, like you said, telepathy is going to be something that is a realization of the non-local experience of mind being something super, something bigger than just a localized body only experience. And, and Russell would say of his illumination that he described it scientifically as a short circuit between the two lobes, the two hemispheres of the brain, an electric short circuit that caused the senses to short out. And that let all that light in. He could see people riding up and down in the elevators during his 39-day experience. Uh, he could see through walls. He could, he could hear people talking uh, outside of the building 12 floors down. I mean, his sense, sensory range so greatly expanded in that experience that he also saw the construction of the atom. He saw the earth from space. He saw planets, formations. Um, he drew pictures of the Lyra system before telescopes could even photograph it. I mean, how did he have this non-local information that he brought back? Hundreds of chemical uh, element aware, uh, elucidations where he completely charted out a, an entire spiral chemical elemental chart, which he said was based on octaves and more like like music than than Mendeleev's. 2D chart of um, just um, basically Mendeleev didn't have it right. <laughs> um, matter you, mean like the work, you mean like the periodic table or are you talking about? Something yeah, the, the Mendeleev yeah. chart, periodic table of the elements. His, his spiral chart was all divined from uh, illumination through his own mind, you know, and that's what he 
when that fusing happened, he experienced that non-local field, that the all, you could call it, or that one drop suddenly became aware of the whole ocean. And he said what he brought back from 39 days in that experience was but a thimbleful in the mighty ocean. So that's the amount of knowledge, you know, and, and that's why I think, too, we, we represent that field of consciousness when we, when we snap into it, when we download just a piece of it, we symbolize that through a light bulb going off over the top of our head. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's sort of that real short, real quick short circuit, that flash of light comes in and suddenly you are aware of something that is not in any book on the planet anywhere. How does that happen? If knowledge isn't already all there, it just has to, it has to come to us through the mind. And there's multiple examples of, of people who have had those flashes that, you know, the guy who invented the laser, for instance, he had to take a walk in nature. He was just a week away from his funding coming to an end and they couldn't get the laser to work. And he took that walk in nature and suddenly his eureka moment that had that flash. He goes, I know what's wrong. He went to the lab 48 hours later, they had a working laser. So there's, there's these times when, you know, that field of consciousness we're able, we're already accessing it. The question is how much do we want to access? And if we do desire more access, certainly that, that is very possible. Yeah. What's your view on dreams? Well, it's interesting. I think, I think dreams belong to the, I want to say dreams belong to the divided universe. You know, it's, it's a, uh, the hemispheres of the brain, there's certain things in the brain, memories, uh, neurons, certain things contain memories and such and unresolved issues, things of that nature. So when we're dreaming, we on an EEG, I believe, are in REM with rapid eye movement. You can actually see that there's electrical things happening in the brain. But there is also a form of dreaming where you don't register. So I would say it's more, there's two, not two kinds of dreaming. Dreaming belongs to the body, but there's another kind of awareness that has no body sense. It's more of a mind experience. And I've actually experienced that. Have you ever experienced being awake? while you're looking at yourself sleeping and actually looking around your own room, fully awake, but you're not in your body. You're looking at yourself sleep. I've done this multiple times and I'll actually hear music and I'll write music while I'm asleep, aware of myself being asleep. And I, I've written entire songs and then woke myself up at 3.30. I come out to my studio and I start recording them. And I've met other people that have done this, you know, not necessarily with music, but they've had that experience of being awake while totally asleep, which isn't dreaming. Again, I, I would just say that's being consciously aware because um, really you don't need to you don't need to sleep necessarily. And that was like Walter's experience of 39 days where he was wide awake for 39 days, even though his body would sleep, he was still consciously aware. And then he'd wake up and begin writing things down, hundreds of chemical charts, drawings. You know, his Universal One book was that, all that culminated into 
you know, 200 and some pages of cosmic knowledge that he basically downloaded during that experience. But that just, to me, that's, that's sort of a, that's kind of like a lighthouse on the horizon. You know, the, the human being is not at the end of its journey. And we have a long way to go, thousands of years. And uh, from Russell's own experience, he, he wrote that his message that he was to, to deliver to man, he was commanded by the light of consciousness or the creator, again, call it what you will, to deliver this message to mankind. And he said that it was a 3,000-year-long journey to get to this point where mankind would become aware of his light within and that he was but the herald of the first 50 years. So we got quite a long way to go. But again, this is not the end of the human being. We, we are just on the very beginning of discovering, you know, this light within that is the source of all knowledge. And again, like knowledge is that white light because it's undivided. We can go more into that color spectrum versus white light, what, you know, that all is. But I think it's a, it's a, it's a great thing to realize that, you know, we all have access to that library of knowledge, which is cosmic and universal. Freaking incredible, man. Like just how much we don't know, how much we're unaware of and how much, I guess, Russell actually extrapolated a lot of this information. I, I recall I started reading The Secret of Light um, not long ago. I'm not very far through, but I loved his take on, I guess, um, eternal life, so to speak. And he referenced it as our physicality in this experience is almost like just imagine a wheel rolling on the ground. And the moment a single spoke touches the ground, that's that's this physicality. But life just simply continues as the wheel rolls. But this experience now is just that moment of, you know, I guess that light meeting. Yeah, in, the, in that analogy, didn't explain it very well, but I think you might understand what I mean. Yeah, I mean, we have a, as divine beings, I really truly think we're all part of that. You know, we come from the undivided into a divided state. Um, it takes two parents, right? There's only um, men and women, by the way. Um, and when those two come together, those polarities, they recreate again an offspring. So, but they have to come together, they have to unite as one to then again produce another two. You know, so all mothers and fathers are pairs of opposites. And that's how he defined the universe, the way it works, that basically a polarity, a still singularity divides in half to set up a polarized opposition of interchange. So you have your north and south poles that interchange electrically, just like the brain. You have a north and south pole with the brain itself. And so... You know, that's that's proof to me that if if you want to um, understand the science, the best way to remember is always remember that all pairs of opposites, all bodies in motion require two poles. You have to have two poles. A bar magnet, for instance, has two poles, north and south. What happens when, when you take your, your little um, pole, pole meter and you go to the middle of the bar magnet. It doesn't light up. Why is that? 
because that's the fulcrum. That's the undivided. That's where no polarity is. See, polarity, north and south, get as far away from each other as possible. So that's what sets up the interchange of electricity, which this is absolutely an electric universe. That is not a theory. That is uh, just the way it is. <laughs> and um, Russell, I would say, didn't write theories. He wasn't a theorist. He conceptualized from an artist standpoint. But he, it's more correct to call his books manuals for nature you know, an actual working manual, because I've seen things in the lab myself that, that absolutely prove uh, everything I've just stated about polarity, which are his statements. I'm just sharing them with you guys. But there's so much to it and so much to come yet in terms of, of uh, evidence that needs to be presented. But it's going to blow holes in this so-called one-way heat-death-dying universe. We actually live in a two-way motion universe one of compression, one of expansion. And unfortunately, our current materialist scientific scientism and dogma teaches that this universe is the result of a Big Bang, which is the Catholic origin of the universe. That was Lemaitre's Jesuit, Monsignor Lemaitre's um, theory that Pope Pius XII said confirmed Genesis 1-1. But uh, again, that's why I think that theory got introduced just a few short years after the Universal One was released, because Doc's literally introducing to the world of science in the New York Times as well, in his arguments with, with other physicists there back in the early 30s, he's introducing this two-way continuous motion universe, which prompted the Catholic Church to say, uh-uh, we got to bury that, threaten them with a decree, and let's get Jesuit Monsignor Lemaitre to release the one-way heat-death-dying universe so that we can lock everybody in to this entropy-only dying universe model. We don't want people to know it's a living universe. Yeah. Okay. And that's why our concepts of electricity are wrong. That's why our concepts of mind are wrong. That's why materialism dominates the scientific chairs of the major universities. That's where all this money came for supporting the quantum idea, which Russell said that the quantum was a travesty of nature. There's no such thing as a packet of energy. Energy doesn't work that way, see? So again, that's a whole nother level of things we could get into. I've gone far off the tangent there for your question. Oh, but, good, uh, man. Don't mind at all. Like, I just want to clarify, if like someone listening is wanting to get into Russell's work, where would you recommend they start? That's a great question because there's so many uh, avenues into this work. Yeah. A lot of people have come to the work through that little book called The Man Who Tapped the Secrets of the Universe, which was written by biographer Glenn Clark. Uh, Russell did a tour with Glenn Clark, several actually from 1945 on to about 48 or so. And um, that's a great sketch biography. Yeah. A lot of people, again, have come to it. My, my avenue into it was through The Secret of Light. If you're a musician, you might want to start with that. Uh, other avenues are the Divine Iliad, the Message of the Divine Iliad, Volume 1 and 2, which is just divine poetry. And it's all about his illumination experience from that 39 days. And uh, it breaks down with commentary the 39,000 words he wrote down from that experience. And then there's, of course, um, there's Leo's work, God Will Work With You But Not For You, which is an incredible book. Uh, Why You Cannot Die by Leo Russell is absolutely incredible too. Fantastic. Um, I don't think anybody's really tackled life after death. 
what it really is and how the nature of, again, Russell science, you got to understand that all duality unfolds from stillness, silence, and sexlessness and non-dimensionality into opposites of motion that interchange electrically and then refold back into that still condition. And there's, yeah. there's a reason why we don't start our number system with two. We don't go two, one, three, four, five. We go one, two, three. Because from one, especially in music, you have to have the one in order to have the two. So I would term this universe not a duality, but rather a triality. That you always have a fulcrum that doesn't move. And then you have the duality, which the fulcrum and the opposites equal three. And so three is really the magic number. And then three squared is six, three cubed is nine. There's your three, six, nine. Mm. So again, you're, 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 you're looking at this universe as something that's tonal, musical, but also elemental chemically, and that mind is the cause of it all. Whatever inspires you, you know, yeah. look at the yeah. titles and go for it. Just pick something and go with it. A lot of yeah. people like the Universal One too. So. Awesome. I just ordered the Glenn the Glenn Clark book actually before we got on today. So during the podcast, like, oh. what? During the podcast? No, before before. <laughs> I was like, oh, that, that's 70 pages. That's cool. I feel like yep. I could uh, get a oh, nice little nice. intro. Yeah. Send I love what you said, too. Wait, what'd you say? Send me a copy, too. Yeah, great. Uh, I love how you said the triality, too, because even in some of my earlier uh, studies in, in the psychology and the psyche, I had teachers who talked about uh, the aware ego, Drs. Hal and Sidra Stone. It was this idea of like standing between the tension of opposites, though the aware ego holds is has the ability to hold the tension of both opposites you're able to kind of feel this duality within you instead of just kind of like living on one foot and bouncing from one to the other but instead holding space for these opposing parts within you and and then what what can you what can grow what can evolve from that what decisions can you make when you're able to feel that tension of opposites i think it's just much more holistic uh, and inclusive within yourself and knowing yourself to that degree mm. Kind of, I think it's reminiscent from a verse in the Tao Te Ching as well, right? One gave birth to two, two gave birth to the three, three gave birth to all things. Yeah, and that's definitely something to consider. I mean, from all things with one, right? Everything else divided, die, D-I is two. So try three, right? And so on. But... That source, that undivided source is within each and every one of us as well. And mm -hmm. that's that field of consciousness that is omnipresent. So that's why our minds can be elsewhere than where our bodies are. You know, and oftentimes our brain gets in the way, our mental gets in between the physical and the spiritual, and it causes all kinds of hell. You know, the materialist is, is hell-bent on denying the spiritual side of everything, right? So they're they're all about the mental explanation through physicality. But in denying that light within, they also set themselves up for failure because it's as if they're denying consciousness itself and saying that everything, you know, nothing man-made, <laughs> um, these glasses, for instance, were not the result of an explosion, you know? So this whole idea of the Big Bang being the result of an explosion from the very get-go the whole thing is just 
it, it doesn't make any sense. Where nature takes many, 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 many years to build something, an oak tree could take 75 years to from seed to a hundred foot tall oak to become what it is. You know, nature does things extremely deliberately slowly and man must do in like to create anything good. You can't just create, you know, a Mona Lisa in, in two minutes, you know, but unfortunately these apps have limited our ability to use our hands in the, in the external physical world, the way the great artists of antiquity have. I think we should go back a generation, look at art and really rekindle the flame of using our own two hands to create as opposed to apps. Let's try to find uh, the ability to, to, to directly inspire your own fingers into not tapping a screen, but painting, drawing, writing, be an author. You know, there's so many things you can do with your hands, even cooking. Cooking is an art. There's yeah. so many things you can do with your hands and that a cell phone just can't do. But one thing good about technology is it does provide us quick information, you know, and, and certain things like, you know, when should I plant? What's the best time to plant? Okay, well, the Farmer's Almanac says during the full moon, you plant this particular thing. That's great to have. But if you don't go out to the garden and actually dig a hole and plant it, it's not going to happen. Nothing's going to grow. So the beauty of Russell's work and his message is that if you want something to exist, by God, use your two strong arms and build the damn thing. You know, no matter what it is, if you're willing to build it, it will stand before you. But you first have to conceive in an, of an idea. Then you have to mentally think it out, take it apart in your mind, in your brain, think it out. And then once you think it out into the parts, start acquiring those parts and then reassemble it. And, and that's really the process of creation. I love a man. And I just imagine what the whole idea of the Big Bang, which is really like an irrational conception of the universe, festering at the base of most people's psyche is doing. Like what, what, what's that saying about your own capability, your own ability to think, to create, to reason, when deep down there's this thing festering where you believe that life was born out of randomness, out of the irrational, like, come on. Yeah, and it's, we call it the big wank, you know, in Russell, <laughs> Russell science. It's, it's a wank. It's they're wanking you, you know. But if you knew this universe was continuous and that you, as an idea of a human being, were also continuous, you know, how would that change our outlook? How would it be to know that we cannot die, that we... We may lose these bodies, but this consciousness will sure as well pick up another one. Say you live to be 80 years, let's let's just assume that you're going to rest for 80 years in the undivided stillness, right? So at some point, you're going to become restless and your consciousness will desire to exist. It'll become strong and bam, you're going to be, you know, right between the sperm and the egg meeting to develop a new body to express your desires on another stage or another planet. You know, the human idea is an incredible thing because we are the, you could say, the organic intelligence, body, mind, and spirit together in this plane of reality. And um, our purpose is to co-create with the creator, you know, to make and create in much the same way that God creates nature. Nature is God's canvas. Man-made items are the canvas of man. And so we learn from nature how to be creative and how to uh, live in balance. That's really the greatest teacher of balance is nature. So 
we would do well to to pay attention to her her ways and processes. Yeah. So as um if I was to play devil's advocate or a skeptic for a second, like what what gave birth to the undivided field, to the one, to the, you know, this undivided white light? Where did that come from? Or was that just is? Is that always is or it is the isness. Yeah. You know, it, it always was, always will be. It's the alpha and the omega, you know. But bodies, you see, if if temporality, which are what bodies are, moons come and go, comets come and go, suns come and go, bodies of all kinds, trees, tigers, human beings, we come and go because bodies are temporal by nature, which basically means temporary. They're not permanent things. What what is permanent is the field from which those things extend and return to. You know, that is not a temporal thing, and it's not something we can sense with our senses. You know, it's we can know it with our minds, though. You know, we can know love. We can't measure it in a laboratory. You know, the funny thing is a lot of scientists use that word. You know, a lot of materialists who don't believe in Anything immaterial, use that word, but they can't measure or prove that it exists with any standard test in laboratory, you know. So, but it is something that that very much so exists. It, it means different things to different people. But ultimately, um, I would play creator's advocate and say, if that field of mind didn't exist, where do new ideas come from? If there's no knowledge in a library, you know, there's no knowledge in a library. Think about this for a second. It's all symbols. Words mm-hmm. are symbols. Mm-hmm. Letters are symbols. Where's the knowledge in these books? It's not in the books. When you read the words, it awakens something in you. That's where the knowledge is. It's not in the books. It's in you. You go, mm-hmm. oh, oh, I get it. That's happening here in in the mind, in the field of consciousness. You're you're downloading, you're being awakened by the words you're reading to a truism, to an axiom, you know, and it's becoming something that becomes a part of you. And so you're really awakening the light within yourself. And and this takes thousands and thousands of lifetimes. You know, it it could take a hundred lifetimes to reach the point of a of a uh, Da Vinci or a you know, could take a thousand. I don't really know. The, yeah. But I, I do know this, that um, there's no knowledge in a library. There's just the awakening of the experience of knowledge, which is in you. And so that tells me that, you know, everybody who is a human being has the potential to awaken something within them, which is from that field, you know, of all love, knowledge. Yeah, I love that that new way of looking at that, you know, in terms of, I mean, it's kind of was really profound for me, what you just said about there's no knowledge in the library, you know, it's what gets awakened within you. Lots of Um, information, no knowledge. Yeah. I wanted to comment on this because, you know, we've talked a lot about this white light, white light, white light. And where else do you hear about that when people talk about they saw a white light, you know, they, they died for 14 minutes. Yep. And then they went to this place and they saw their relatives and then maybe they came back. And yep. so do you think they just tap into that fulcrum point, that that non-dual place for a moment and then come back into the, the realm of duality? Very much so. Um, 10,000 plus near-death experiences 
our catalog, probably 100,000 now, if not more. But very interesting that the white light is always representative of that. Now, if you take a prism like Newton or like Goethe, and you you put a white light, you know, you take a piece of cardboard or something and, and put a little hole in it. So just that one beam of light shines out of that hole into that prism. That white light separates into what we now know as the color spectrum. And that's what Walter Russell basically, he, he had two kinds of light in his science, capital L light, which is the light of mind, which is consciousness. It's represented again by that light bulb or that white flash, that inspiration, that flash of inspiration. Um, and then there's the lowercase light, which is the divided light spectrum, which is your red, blue, green, yellow, orange, magenta, whatever. And um, when, when Goethe worked with light, he also said that the shadow is a color as well, which is an interesting observation, but that the light and the dark and its mixtures and different um, expressiveness in, in its character was part and parcel to what we see, what, what we don't see and, and everything in between. And then you had the interesting thing, just to throw this out, because we're on the subject, I wanted to say this earlier, but if you take that white light beam through a prison, prism and you put, you see those, those colors of the prism that are the color spectrum. If you were to put those on a wheel, okay, like a cardboard wheel, if you were to put each one of those colors on the cardboard wheel in the same representative pie slice, equal pie slices, and then you spin that wheel with all those colors, guess what you see? White. White, white light. So if the color spectrum comes from white light, which is lowercase in Russell science, but the capital L light is the undivided light of mind, then if mind is the field that is omnipresent in the universe um, and consciousness is but centered in a body, then that can certainly explain conceptually how consciousness is able to manifest in different places at different times omnipresently. I mean, you you're, you still carry the same consciousness, whether you're in the Northern Hemisphere at the North Pole or at the South Pole or at the equator. So what's real here? What is actual reality? So, so Matt, are you saying if we found a, a wheel big enough to, to tape 7 billion people on it and we spinned it, it would be white light? <laughs> no, that's, that's a hard one to say. <laughs> um, I think 7 billion people knew what they unfolded from and what they refold into, if they knew that inherently, and if they knew that what they do to another person, they do to themselves, we'd have quite a different world. Yeah. You know, that's something I say that the powers that never were, a lot of people call them the Illuminati. I call them the Deluminati because there's no light, no recognition of light in them whatsoever. So we shouldn't give that majestic uh, descriptive term to them. Yeah shouldn't give it over to them call them what they are deluminated and they're they're taking the world and its people back to the blackness of the of the jungle you know and it's, we want to go to the mountaintop we want to see the world for what it is and be able to to work as a divine human being within it and and that's our power it's our birthright we should reclaim it you know yeah it seems like they're the they i say they obviously in this general term but want to 
keep us from illuminating, you know, to the degree yeah. that we can and know how, and that is our birthright. Yeah, to hear new, uh, Yuval Noah Harari say it, you know, you won't need God. We are going to be a God now, and you, you're going to, you know, most of you aren't needed anymore. <laughs> it's like the hubris of these people, you know, they're, they're really a 0.00001% of the human population trying to control the whole rest of it. And it's just not going to work, but it's fascinating to watch them trip over themselves in the effort. You know, this yeah. will be a big lesson. A hundred years from now, we're going to have history books that that look at this time we've gone through for what it really is. You know, well, I'm convinced guess, you, you can't get over on the universe, no matter how many people you've got working with you. There's certain divine laws that they are in such violation of that. And remember, man, the pendulum always swings back. Yeah. That's you know? that's what I was thinking. Like you had the dark ages and then the enlightenment came afterwards. And so where are we now and what comes, what will follow? You know, and I mean, we see it. We see it around us. There are more and more people. The cracks are slipping in. They're really questioning what's happening in the world. And they're like really wanting to take more ownership of their life and their health and their bodies and yep. and, and see what's possible. You know, and I, I love it. You know, it's it's something I think all of us are passionate about. It's part of the work that Joel and I do. And and um, I don't know, man, I'm, I'm really optimistic and excited, even though I know who knows how things will unfold there'll be some there are dark times and there will continue to be to some degree but at the same time i i feel great about what's what's unfolding absolutely i mean it's it's all divine if you want to say it that way yeah. but and it's also we have a choice to make as as the great gandalf to quote him uh you know all that matters is what we choose to do with the time we've been given you know and do something divine, do something to fulfill your purpose, you know, which if you haven't discovered it yet, start thinking more inwardly, you know, and yeah. less outwardly. You know, the Fauci's of the world, those are the, the ghouls standing at the, at the gates of the temple saying, don't go in there. You're forbidden to go in there. Yeah. You're going to, there's no light in there, just darkness. Just, just trust me, take this, take this shot and do what I say. Well, some people get brave and they, they get the courage and they go, you know what? I'm going through the gate. I'm going to run right past these food dogs, these guardians, and I'm going to go into the center of the gate and I'm going to find out what's in there. And, you know, that's, that's the light in ourselves. And we can learn from that. In fact, that's the only place new knowledge does come from, you know, is that internal knowledge. I mean, before, before the Wright brothers, there was no airplane on this planet. I mean, mm -hmm. maybe, well, let's say going back before Egypt, right? There might have sure, been some helicopters, sure. hieroglyphics and things like that. But that discovery by two men and the whole world said, no, no, this this isn't, this can't happen. You know, for 25 years, there were farmers and rural people uh, that didn't get the, the papers making the announcements that the Wright brothers had achieved flight. They're calling the sheriff going, there's something in the sky. <laughs> you know, well, it's an airplane, dude, you know. It's, you should have read the papers, right? But the point is that until these things become, you know, until that idea is built, until you build the plane, it's just an idea. It doesn't exist. Yeah. You know, and I'm I'm getting ready to drop a documentary in, in the next month. I've actually finally, after several years of thinking about this, decided I'm going to put it out there. You know, it's taken a long time to do, but it's called Dispelling Dimensional Madness, which I'm going to completely... Uh, show the scientism and the new age Gnostic view of higher dimensions and all this stuff to be total bollocks. 
You know, awesome. it's all of all form of escapism. We have one reality and it's our job to notice that we have the very real power of changing that reality anytime we want. And that's what I think is the greatest secret that this Illuminati is hiding from us. They want the power to change reality, but want us all to want to get the hell out of here or look to something other than ourselves as the solution. So, you know, I'm going to drop that probably in a month or two. So, Can't wait to to see it, man. That sounds right up our alley, man. Uh, <laughs> I'm really psyched that uh, it's a creation that's been going on for several years and you're about to put it out. Took a lot of thought, man. A lot of thought and looking at the roots, you know, where does this whole idea of dimensions come from? Why, why are these dimensions in the 1800s all about measuring physical things and then suddenly they become imagination, uh, scientific romance, mm. you know? Mm. How, how did it go from actual measuring to measure out to, okay, we all need to think in the fifth dimension because I've heard, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put some, some weight down on this production. It's going to be pretty damning. Can't wait, man. Um, so what are your thoughts on like, I guess, hostile occult forces or interdimensional beings and whatnot? Um, if you can comment on that. Well, I don't buy the interdimensional thing. Again, it's, it's part of the research I've done, culminating probably five to six years worth and going back and, and actually looking at who brought this idea of dimensions, where did it come from? Um, the the cult-like uh, personas of the, the 19th century in the UK and these spirit meetings that used to take place with the upper echelons of society in New York, they had these seance clubs that would get together and, and channel entities and ascended masters and you know, the, really the birth of the new age happened in the UK, you know, around the idea of uh, different planes of existence and speaking with ghosts and uh, a lot of interesting things in the authors that purported the the idea of a fourth dimension, which Einstein actually stole from uh, Edwin Abbott, who wrote Flatlanders. He He took Edwin's theory of a fourth dimension and applied it to time which time is not fourth dimension. You don't need a fourth dimension for time. In fact, we don't even live in a third dimension. The, the whole idea of dimension being phys, a physical place somewhere in the universe is flawed because the very word itself means to measure, to measure out. Mm -hmm. So how can that, how can we go from like barometric pressure or tone or color or width, breadth, and length to the fourth dimension, which is a place, or the fifth dimension in the new age that we all need to get to to solve our problems in this little world, you know? I mean, it's all, it's pure escapism. It's Gnosticism on acid, you know, and exactly. it needs to be put down like a lame animal because anything that takes you out of where you are, and the funny thing is I've met many people in the new age movement and stuff over the years. Uh, one in particular says, I live in the fifth dimension now. So things here don't bother me anymore. I'm like, well, you're still fucking here. Yeah. You're still here, you know? So where's this fifth dimension? It's ludicrous. It's it's a form of ins insanity and madness, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But again, I think the elite know this, and they put this crap out there. And it used to be called, you know, science fiction used to be called scientific romance. And when it came to the States, they changed it to science fiction because it, 
romanticism, you know, it's the romance age, right? Scientific romance was science fiction back in the UK, and it, it changed when it came here. And then you get the all the drops on in the 50s with, you know, um, the Twilight Zone. You've entered the fifth dimension, a dimension of sight and sound. You know, this is where they start drilling it. You know, and then you got Carl Sagan come on with his Flatlanders revamp and the science of the 70s talking about dimensions. Now you have uh, Michio Kuku and Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about, you know, multiverses and parallel universes and stuff that, you know, there's one universe, it's one, and we live in it. And we need to know from the masters who learned to master reality, how they did it and how we can do like they did, you know, and it's the, the shoulders of giants, again, the Russells, the Steiners, the, um, you know, there, there's just too many to name. Um, but the, the Buckminster Fullers, the, these guys are the visionaries whose shoulders we stand on and, and we should mimic them. We should learn to, you know, create the kinds of things with our own two hands that uplifts humanity and, and puts the power back in our court, takes it away. No more giving our power away. We need to take it back, you know, and we need to stop. And I think it's happening on a massive scale. You know, there's a huge red wave coming to the United States. It's a red tsunami tomorrow, mm. and I can't wait, you know, because that's when the work really starts. You know, and I want to see Nuremberg 2.0, and I want to see justice delivered, you know, and finally, uh, yeah. that that should give humanity a, a welcome reprieve from all the craziness that's happened. But I'm positive, you know, I'm a positivist, and, and I, I look... Um, Optimism is my forte as much as possible. You know, feel bad when you need to feel bad. Um, if you need to feel down, feel down, feel it. Don't repress it. But then get back to work. You know, and the past two years for me has been like I've been in a cave, man. I'm telling you, but it's been a lot of work, a lot of things. I want to just come out and say to the world, this is what I'm doing, you know, but it, it it's not time yet. So okay. it's sort of an incubation period, but again, like a seed, it has to be in the ground before it can sprout, you know, but yeah. when it does, it's going to go both directions and it's going to come up and when it's time, it's time. That's awesome, dude. Real quickly, I just want to throw this in there because you mentioned sure. a, a day of reckoning Nuremberg and we were talking about Fauci before and Lord of the Rings. And I just was just thinking like, Fauci kind of reminds me of Gollum. <laughs> 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 you know, he just does. He's like, he thinks he is the science, you know, and he just wants the power of the ring, you know. Ultimately, yeah. he ends up, uh, you know, melting in a in a pool of lava. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. The guy is just, talk about demented, you know, not in touch with reality. And, yeah. you know, that's that's Pluto, a lot of Pluto there coming to pull the curtain back and, and show sure. us who these people really are. But if you put uh, the preacher from Poltergeist and Joe Biden up on the same screen, you can't tell the difference. <laughs> Come with me! Right into the light! No? Uh, Funny people think of the light in, in different ways, but there's yeah. one light that's never going to lie to you, and that's, it manifests in you in what they call the still small voice, or the voice of your conscience. And people, we need to start listening to that voice because that's yep. going to lead us out of here and into a better better realm, you know, which is here. It's going to create the realm that we really desire, which is truth, honesty, 
um, inventiveness, things of that nature. And when times get hard, the beauty of that is is necessity is the mother and father of all invention. And I think we're really going to see some incredibly creative things going on in the world, different methods of of transferring um, currency between human beings. That's already being built, uncancelable platforms that are cancel proof and you know, we're, we're basically at a crossroads. You know, there's there's two emerging paths, one going straight down to the blackness of the jungle and the other heading upward to the heavens, you know, and, and we shouldn't limit ourselves and what we're capable of because we have all that knowledge inside of us and we can tap it anytime we want. Couldn't agree more, man. So inspiring. Matt, I feel like we could honestly chat for hours. Might have to do a return at some point. But brother, thank you so much for the journey you've walked, for who you are, and for the knowledge that you're here to to share with us, man. It's it's I know my journey in terms of, you know, Walter Russell's work is very, very, very early days, but I'm far more excited to to venture onto the exploration and and discover. And I feel that call for sure. And I highly implore anyone that's gotten value from this podcast to walk that same path and discover and, you know, be, be illuminated. Matt, any final yeah. words for our, oh, sorry, if go for it. I was just going to say, um, he's one of many giants out there. Um, but the, the beauty of the giants whose shoulders we stand on is that we can become giants as well. Yep. You know, let's push ourselves. Let's strive for, for a, a higher perfection, you know, and, and I tend to think this universe is perfect. It's interesting, but, I would only say that because don't we perfectly fuck up our lives? But we can perfectly manifest uh, the good in them as well. You know, it's we just need to take the responsibility. You know, and the point of a mystery, we do live in the great mystery. But the point of the mystery is to try to figure it out. Right? Yeah. If we just said it all, oh, it's just a mystery, it's unsolvable. Why would we drive to learn anything new? You know, mm -hmm. the point of a mystery is to to get on the case and try to figure it out. So, and it's going to take literally thousands of years, but I, I see a time as Russell did himself that in the future, humanity is going to, to going to gain more and more godlike power. So we need to be as responsible as we can possibly be if we're going to be able to wield that power. And I think we're a little spiritually immature for the technology that's upon us now, but it's also a lesson you know, we we learn these lessons so that we can attain the balance needed to to handle the developments and the technologies that we're going to discover. But also that, uh, again, the human race was created to be a divine expression, a vehicle to express the divine itself. And I think that's the purpose of man. So then man's sole purpose is to manifest his own creator. And uh, the more of us that do that, the more we can create a world that doesn't need these dark forces any longer. Hmm. Yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate it, man. I, I love uh, hearing about spirituality through this lens. You know, it makes me more connected to it, you know, sure. as opposed to a lot of the fluff that's out there, a lot of the dogmatic stuff that many of us were raised with. And it's something that really aligns with me. And uh, so, like, I echo what Joel said, man. Thanks for your work. Thanks for your presence. Thanks uh, yeah, for everything you do, dude. And just looking forward to stay connected uh, as we move forward. I appreciate that. I'd love to join you guys again. And if anybody yeah. wants to learn more, they can yep. reach my site, mattpresti.com. And check out Walter Russell's work. Uh, the university could really use the support. Um, www.philosophy.org 
And that's the the hub for all the Russell work. The best quality Russell books. Uh, don't just get a PDF free off the pirated internet. Go support the university, support the foundation, which helps keep the artwork maintained and keep it open to the public and keep these uh, incredible books and, and concepts going out to the world. You know, there's a lot of great minds out there. And, and the more you put on your shelf from the books of incredible authors and uh, the more you're going to develop a worldview that's full of beauty and, and power that's going to help us to change and turn things around. Amazing. Guys, you know what to do. Um, if you've gotten value from this, continue the exploration. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Take care. What's up, everyone? What an amazing conversation that was with Matt Presti. Um, how inspiring was that? Just a reminder again that round four of Rise Above the Herd, our eight-week group coaching program for truth seekers, applications are now open. We're only taking 12 people. So again, if you're feeling inspired by this chat, if you really want to take the next steps in your life, if you want to step into your potential, go to our website, riseaboveherd.co. You can read everything that we have there. You can read all our testimonials. And if you truly resonate with what, what you're seeing there and you want to apply, just press the button. You get to jump on a 20-minute free call with us. And uh, again, we can, we can talk about uh, you know, what next steps are there for you in your path and whether or not you want to continue growing and evolving to the best person you want to be and whether we're the right fit to support you in that journey. So um, yeah, check it out. If it truly resonates, um, hit us up. And uh, as always, uh, if you love the podcast, uh, rate, review, subscribe, wherever you are. We really, really appreciate it. Share on social media. Um, we love what we're doing. We're really grateful for your support and uh, looking forward to the, to the next uh, chat. Smoke and mirrors, I'm seeing through the illusion. Waking up in a the time, they think you're in a delusion. Somebody set the alarms, cause they be too busy snoozing. I'm in a DeLorean. Fast forward in evolution to a place where we can share our confusions. Yeah, 450 BC, I'm sharing tea with confusion.